Welcome to Outspoken Voices, a podcast by and for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer parents, people with LGBTQ parents, future parents, and everyone else who is part of our family journeys. I'm your host, Emily McGranahan, and I am the Director of Family Engagement with Family Equality Council. Some of my favorite memories are of my grandparents. I'm lucky because I got to experience a whole range of grandparental love. I have two biological grandparents who loved me from the start, and I also had two grandparents that I didn't meet until I was six when my non-bio mom came into my life. Now her parents already had two granddaughters who were many years older than me, and then all of a sudden this like six-year-old comes into their lives out of nowhere, and really just amazingly they treated me just the same as my new cousins. I'm incredibly lucky to have had all four of them in my life for as long as I did. But everything wasn't always simple. Uh, We actually never talked about my parents being gay, or really uh, anybody being gay for that matter. Uh, I felt their acceptance through their profound love for me, and they showed that they cared, but we really never talked about who, what our family was and who was in our family. So that's one of the reasons that I am just so inspired by members of Family Equality Council's Pearls of Wisdom program. Grandparents who are speaking out and advocating for our LGBTQ families. Today with me is Ronnie Sanlo, who is one of the founding members of the program. Dr. Sanlo is an author, LGBTQ historian, and playwright. Now retired, Dr. Sanlo directed the UCLA LGBT Center, was professor and director of the UCLA Master's in Education in Student Affairs. In a previous life, uh, she was an HIV epidemiologist in Florida. While Ronnie has many academic publications, her most recent books include her memoir, The Purple Golf Cart, The Misadventures of a Lesbian Grandma, and a historical novel about the last five months of World War II entitled The Soldier, the Avatar, and the Holocaust. She and her wife, UCLA alumna Dr. Kelly Watson, are working on a lesbian history of Palm Springs. Whew, what a retirement. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you, Emily. (laughs) So the first question I always love asking everybody is, who is in your family and how was it formed? Okay, well, I have uh, a rather large family in that my current family, of course, is my wife and myself and our little dog, Dooney. And my mother is still alive. And today, I have my two children, my daughter and my son, and they each have partners and two children, um, so that I have four grandchildren as well. How did that family come into being? Okay, family came into being um, when I was... 25. Mm -hmm. I I actually had been, I was very closeted. I knew I was a lesbian from the time I was 11. And, um, and I had fallen in love with this girl in college and we lived together for two years, but she had no idea that I was in love with her. I never told her or anyone. I never acted on it. Um, I was just happy in my, my little setting. Mm -hmm. And then one day my grandparents came to visit and my grandfather said, you're almost 25 and you're not married. What, are you funny or something? Mm. And I thought, oh, my God, he's figured it out. You know, it's leaking out of me somehow because I had never said the words. And so I called this guy who had been my sort of default date in college um, who had asked me to marry him just before we graduated. Uh, and it's, it was like two and a half years later, and I called him and I said, do you still want to get married? And he said, yes. So 
we were married within three months of my grandfather's comment, and I was pregnant immediately thereafter and very distinctly thought to myself, now no one will ever again ask me if I'm funny or something. Mm. So I was very much in a closet whose door I had just nailed shut. Mm. So I was married. I, I had my daughter. Uh, three years later, I had my son. And, and at the age of 32, I, I knew I just couldn't live the lie anymore. Um, it was just, it was killing me. And we were now in Florida. My, my husband had been a, a middle school band director in Florida. And so when we got married, I, I moved from Los Angeles back to Florida, but this time to the Orlando area. And two years prior to my coming out in 1979, Anita Bryant had done her thing in Miami um, which repealed Miami's new um, gay rights ordinance. Mm -hmm. And the state, uh, to honor Anita Bryant, um, created their first anti-gay parenting laws. Mm -hmm. And when I came out in 1979, knowing absolutely nothing about these laws, um, I lost custody of my two children, who were now three and six. I, I, was, I was so incredibly angry and sad and depressed and pretty much of a wreck. Um, but that fueled my anger so much that, that I became very active in, back then, the lesbian and gay civil rights movement, um, when very few people were. Um, so, and I had, I had limited visitation of my children until they were 9 and 12, and by then I was working for the Florida AIDS program. I was an epidemiologist with the AIDS program. And my children were told by their father and his parents that because I'm a lesbian, which I did not hide at all from the day I came out, so they knew. Mm -hmm. So because I'm a lesbian and because I work with people with AIDS, I must have AIDS. And if they touch mm -hmm. me or hug me or kiss me, they're going to get sick and die. And, and so my children uh, didn't want to see me again. And I mm -hmm. didn't see them again. They were 9 and 12 at that point. I didn't see them again until each one of them was in their 20s. Wow. So, so, you know, we've spent a lot of our adult years just sort of rebuilding relationships. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that they were in their 20s. Were they at points in their life where they were considering becoming parents? Like, were, were, were did you establish those relationships uh, or, you know, or rebuild them prior to becoming a grandparent? Well, when my daughter was 22... I was working at the University of Michigan. I was the director of the LGBT program in Ann Arbor. And uh, I got an email from my daughter, and uh, it was uh, Christmas of 1994. You know, I d didn't see my children, but I always sent them cards mm -hmm. that gave them my contact information. So they always had that information if they ever wanted to contact me. And as soon as she got to Ohio, she did contact me. And she came to my house the next day and brought her husband and told me that she was pregnant mm. and that her baby was due in May of 95. And so she and I started spending time together. Mm -hmm. And when she went into labor in May of 95, she called me and I made it to the hospital where she was. And I was in the birthing room and I got to watch my first granddaughter be born. And, um, and that, was, that was such an amazing day. I mean, I, I remember every single second of that day. We've always had, we've maintained our contact. My daughter and I have had a fairly contentious relationship until recently. But, um, but I've always had a very close relationship with my two granddaughters, even though they still today live in Florida, and I live in both California and Washington State. 
so I don't see them very often. But, you know, thank goodness with social media, they text me and Facebook me constantly, uh, several times a week. Mm-hmm. My son, on the other hand, um, I had I'd been recruited by and moved to Los Angeles to work at UCLA, and I, this was several years later, and I received a letter from him, and, and it said, Dear Dr. Sandlow or Mom, I don't know what to call you. I'm searching for myself, and in order to find myself, I know I need to find you. And, and we began um, corresponding by mail. He didn't have a computer. He, he really had just come off the streets, mm-hmm. and uh, he didn't have a computer, but we wrote to one another, and I sent him a plane ticket to come visit me uh, uh, for um, Thanksgiving of 1998. And he came out to California, and we started rebuilding our relationship. Now, I thought this kid was gay from the time he was a year old. I was in Orlando for a conference, and it was my birthday weekend, and he was 28. And he came to my hotel, and we were going to have dinner together. And he said, Mom, I have a birthday present for you. And I said, what? And he goes, I'm gay. <laughs> and, I, and I'm going, you know, this child is probably the last one to know because everybody <laughs> else knew. Um, but, but he came out, and when he told his father, he was disowned by his father and his mm-hmm. grandparents. And so I told him, you know, put your clothes and your cat in your car and come live with me in Los Angeles. And three weeks later, he was in my apartment in L.A. Wow. So, um, so we have, we, you know, we started building our relationship immediately, and we have a great relationship. He, he's up here in Seattle now. And, um, you know, he, he was never involved in a relationship with anyone. He would date periodically, but he didn't get involved in a relationship but there were two young women with whom he'd been friends in Florida, and they moved out to L.A. also. And I officiated at their wedding, which was really sweet. Mm. Um, but they asked him to be the donor daddy mm-hmm. uh, for their child and turned out to be children. They've got two oh, wow. little boys, and my son is the father of these two little boys. And and they're all very close. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I have these two beautiful little grandsons who are um, – eight and four. My parents uh, have been accepting of me since the day I came out in 1979. Uh, They've been very accepting of my son. Mm -hmm. Uh, My oldest granddaughter is 23, and she's been in a relationship with a woman for the last four years, Um, and she identifies as pansexual, not Mm -hmm. as lesbian. Um, My son has gone from identifying as gay to also identifying as pansexual. The foundation of this family is really strong, and it really does have a basis in the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. It seems like of, of the sort of generations of people coming out, yourself and your own experience, your son, and now your granddaughter, this is someone who is, this is the youngest of the three sort of generations to be out. Do you think that is in part just how like our culture has changed or do you see conversations at home having a role in some of that what what i attribute it to is the conversations that she that both my granddaughters have had with uh, my daughter mm. although my daughter and i have had a you know this contentious relationship for years uh, my granddaughter has i mean my daughter has been very supportive of me as a lesbian and of her brother as a gay man and, and she's a tremendously outspoken ally in Florida mm. um, and, and has been from the time the girls were born. 
Mm-hmm. So these little girls always knew that they had a lesbian grandma. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they've had this sense of social justice around LGBT issues their whole lives. And, um, you know, and I, I really give my daughter lots of credit. Um, you know, having, having been raised uh, in a home where, you know, lesbians and gay men were vilified, especially lesbians, were mm-hmm. vilified, given that that's the context in which my children were raised, they, their socially just consciousness is really quite astounding to me, has been forever. Yeah. You know, as I had mentioned, I was very close with my grandparents. I saw them all the time. But we never acknowledged that my parents were gay or that that was right. something that was important or that having queer parents was a critical part of my own identity, which is also just so... It's so compartmentalized in some ways because, you know, Nancy, my one of my moms, didn't start dating my biological mom until I was older. I was about five. And so I met her when I was about six. And I met, you know, these my grandparents and when I was more around six years old. And so it's just incredible to think of, you know, they love their daughter. They love then their daughter's brand new six year old. And they love the their daughter's partner, but they wouldn't acknowledge what that was um, and where we fit into the family other than like this is my granddaughter unequivocally but it it, it, so they could feel that love and they could show it but talking about it was really totally different it was very separated you know you just made me think that it might be similar to that today in that people don't talk about it but I think especially in in the context of my family it's just a given. So mm-hmm. it's, it's just a natural thing that there are lesbians and gay men in this family. Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, we all know one another. We all know our stories. We have shared stories. Um, and so it just really isn't that much up for discussion. We're back, mm-hmm. you know, several genera- a, a generation ago. Um, and even in my generation, I'm, I'm 71. Even in my generation, I think people still are uncomfortable talking about it. I suppose it's it's so much more present and familiar in some ways with now younger generations. So, yeah, maybe it doesn't need to be talked about as much because it's sort of like the response that I hear so often is like, yeah, and like, so? (laughs) Well, you know, (laughs) and the other thing, Emily, is that, you know, you and I live on the coast. Right. You know, we're not in middle America. We're not in those 29 states that, you know, yes, same-sex marriage, marriage equality is the law of the land, but in 29 states, there still is no protection for maintaining custody mm-hmm. or keeping jobs or, or housing. And so, um, you know, probably in the majority of the country, maybe not necessarily the majority of the people, but in the majority of the country, um, it's still very dangerous. To talk mm-hmm. about it in, in, even with family members. Absolutely. So one of the things that Family Equality Council is really focused on is getting out information about paths to parenthood. That that families, LGBTQ people, can form families. And your own story of of how your family was formed. It, it rings so much of what you're sharing really rings to what my own mom's experience as she has shared it with me. And, you know, we've talked about this a good amount that for her being out felt like for many years felt like closing the door on 
having a family, on ever raising children, because the laws didn't feel like she could become a foster adoptive parent. She didn't you know, feel like the, the laws were there to protect her as a, you know, through pregnancy and through raising a child. You know, she was very concerned about losing her job for a very long time. She was a public school teacher. That identity and being out and having a family be, is so complex and only more recently has felt safe and a lot more possible. Um, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's why the Family Equality Council is so unbelievably important, Emily, because mm -hmm. those things that you just described still happen today mm -hmm. in 29 states. Teachers who are known to be lesbians or gay men or, or bi or trans probably mm -hmm. um, lose their jobs still and yet. Yep. And so it's very frightening uh, to let anybody know. I knew this couple who'd been together for 30 years, and they came to school in different cars from different directions, even though they lived together, because mm -hmm. they didn't want people to, to suspect. Mm, yep. It's still very much a challenge. There's a lot of work to do. And this political climate is frightening. Um, I worry for my, my children and my grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we've got to pay attention on God, we've got to get out there and vote. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, even just, you know, at the time of us recording this now, just recently uh, in Kansas and Oklahoma, we've seen anti or license to discriminate bills that would allow child welfare agencies that are contracting with the state to discriminate against anyone that they deemed having a moral objection to placing a child with. So really denying then foster and adoptive homes to children. I mean, it's just not in the right. interest of kids. And so they can say that about someone of a different faith, someone of no faith, a single individual. And especially, you know, really, this is coming, it, it is blatantly coming at LGBTQ identified oh, people. Absolutely. The religious liberty laws, you know, mm -hmm. that, that the executive order was just signed, you know, what, a couple, two weeks ago, maybe, mm -hmm. um, that created the religious liberty laws. And and it's um, and Florida was the one that created the anti-adoption, anti-gay yep. parenting laws in 1978. Oklahoma was the next state to create those. Florida didn't get rid of those laws until 2010. Oklahoma got rid of them prior to that, but now they're back in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. So so we're watching these these laws um, just you know start rolling backwards which is why it's critical for us to be supporting the family equality council and especially mm -hmm. lambda legal yeah. defense and education fund because they're the ones who are fighting for us in court mm -hmm. you mentioned this as well going a little bit more in depth into your own experience then in a in a very different what became a very different movement um, in working uh, with uh, hiv and aids or individuals with hiv and aids and and sort of the medical side of things in you know, 1987 to 1994, those were incredibly important years and years where, just as you described, the, the understanding and the stigma was just at peak. Um, have you, has that, do you think there's been much improvement there uh, as well? Well, you know, I mean, the improvement has been that um, HIV AIDS is, treated a little bit differently now or perhaps mm -hmm. a lot differently than it was before and i don't know if that's good or bad but you know now it's treated as a chronic manageable disease as opposed to a death sentence um when i was doing this work i mean people died every day they would get a diagnosis and you know three months later they were gone part of the work that that i was doing and that my office was doing was going into the hospitals 
And where we had to do our epidemiological work, we were also doing social services because nobody in the hospital would. We were picking up trays from the floor by the doors, food trays, to take into people because the food service people wouldn't go in their rooms. Or we would be the ones cleaning the rooms in the, you know, the hospital rooms because nobody else would do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or changing someone's gown because no one else would do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was a, it was a horrible, horrible time that required an army of people who, who weren't afraid to get in there. But we knew how this virus was transmitted by 1987, and we also knew, I knew, that there's no way I could have contracted it. Right. So I wasn't afraid of people with AIDS. It was easy to get in there and do the work. It was just hard. It was hard in my heart, mm-hmm. you know, and then to have to hold their partners or their parents at memorial services or fight with family who tried to take away somebody's belongings because the partner had died. I mean, it was just a horrible, horrible time. Um, So those times have changed, thank God. Um, But, Mm -hmm. you know, we've got got other challenges today Mm -hmm. that, you know, and the biggest challenge right now is this administration and the anti-gay laws that um, that they're reinstituting. Mm-hmm. Has being in contact and being in touch as frequently as you're able to, to do now, thanks to in part to technology and, and traveling and visiting with your grandchildren, it seems like that must have, that has a, a sort of an added meaning, I imagine, in your experience because you're seeing your own children as they're as they became parents and sort of grew into parenthood and then being with your grandchildren at ages where you were forced to be apart from your, your children, how, what does staying in touch sort of mean for you? And, um, how are, what are some of the ways that you've, you've made that you've been doing that? You mentioned a little bit of, of some of the technology you've been using. Right. Well, one of the things that, that I've done over the years is I've tried to be present when my, granddaughters who are older now they're 20 and 23 i was present Mm -hmm. at their various rites of passages so Mm -hmm. you know whenever they would go from one school to another or their high school graduations you know i would be there i was there i was present with them and for them and and then to be able to stay in contact with them on facebook which one granddaughter i mean i think i think we touch base at least every other day she's in college Mm -hmm. right now she's 20 uh, and the other granddaughter's 23, and she works full time, and you know, and she's got her girlfriend. Um, so we're in touch maybe once a week, once every two weeks, something like that. But it's always uh, through messaging, through texting, every now and then a phone call, but rarely yeah. a phone call, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> but but That's I think right. that you know, I don't care how we stay in touch as mm-hmm. long as we do. Mm-hmm. My two little grandsons. Um, their moms, uh, we, we connect through uh, uh, texting, but they do on their telephone, they do the video thing on their telephone. Yeah, yep. Um, so, so they are always sending videos, and I'll send videos back. So, so I chat by video with the two little boys, mm-hmm. and, um, and that's fun. That's really wonderful hearing that when my, my grandparents were – for the most part, and for many years, physically, geographically very close to where I was. So I saw them, but technology played absolutely no role in how how present they were in my life. Uh, and so I had peers who I remember texting their grandpa- like their grandfather. And I was like, that is so 
cool. That technology then is it it is creating a new type of presence. Like you're very present. You're clearly you're you're connecting all the time in often smaller ways, but it's then a you know, always present to what's any updates in their life or what's sort of going on. It's it's a different right. type of presence. So here's a cool thing. So my mom is uh, 92. Oh, wow. And she is very proficient on the computer and on Facebook. Oh, wow. So um, she was telling me yesterday that for the last few days, she's had been having uh, a wonderful text conversation or an email conversation with my oldest granddaughter. And, and where they've always had a, a connection, the granddaughters would would text them to say thank you for a gift or something. Right. But now it's been this ongoing conversation mm. about what my granddaughter does for a living and what she wants to do. And, all. and my mother mm. is just, you know, she's so happy that she's having this conversation with her great-granddaughter. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, there, there's that piece that's happening, too, that mm-hmm. the older generation, you know, the generation older than myself, um, mm-hmm. You know, some of those folks are becoming pretty proficient on computers as well, specifically to maintain contact with the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Yeah. So it sounds like it's almost meeting meeting the grandchildren where they are and how the teens and, and young adults today are communicating, which, you know, you read any sort of think piece in the, in the news and it's often, you know, how no one talks to each other on the phone anymore. It's it's all those sort of apps and messaging and emails and things like that. Right. But but now, it's all, is that sort of, for you, was it that need to meet them where they were? Or were you, were you sort of already on Facebook and on some of these different platforms? Well, I was already on them, but that's because I worked in higher ed. And yeah. that's how, <laughs> that was the only way I could communicate with my students. Yes. <laughs> you know, so um, I was already, you know, pretty proficient on, on those kinds of applications. If I wanted to have the relationships with, with younger people, and do the work that I needed and wanted to do, I had to get with the program. Mm. And, and because I did, uh, that really helped me with my relationship, um, you know, with my grandchildren. Yeah. One thing that did, that, that, that what you had shared at the very beginning that made me think about how even identities and the experiences within the LGBTQ community have changed so much uh, over various generations with your your granddaughter and then your son now identifying as pansexual. You were in higher ed, so I suppose it's a very, it, I'm sure it was a different experience than those who were, who maybe identify as LGBTQ but are not co- you know, so frequently exposed to college-age students who are uh, having some of these conversations or certainly academia where identity and language are always changing you know have you had conversations with people of like no no pansexual like that is a that's an identity you know what that is um why it's legitimate you know, anything like that yes okay <laughs> okay all the time i mean the language has changed you know yeah. i love my word lesbian i love my word dyke you know the word mm-hmm. queer you know i from the time i was 11 until i was 31 i referred to myself as that damn queer in the third person you know, there's so much self-hatred around it. And so I, the word is not among my favorites. Mm-hmm. You know, um, all, all I can do is uh, what I think any grandparent should do, and that is just love their kids, love their grandkids. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you don't understand what it is they're doing or saying, ask, because mm-hmm. they'll tell you. Um, and and make sure that you do everything you can to maintain a relationship to be part of their lives. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the best we can do. Yeah. What do you see as any of those that difference or the journey from sort of acceptance to to, to advocacy? You know, is it is, is acceptance one thing? And then do you see what is that next step further? Maybe that grandparents can be taking or or trying to get to um, and to support their children and grandchildren. Right. So so a thing that I saw happen in my family Um, I graduated with my doctorate in 1996, and I had been very close friends with uh, a woman and her husband who founded the PFLAG chapter in Jacksonville, Florida. Mm. So she and her husband came to my graduation, and she met my parents, who also came for the first time. And my parents had been supportive, but they hadn't hadn't been advocates. They've Mm -hmm. just been accepting. And so they met uh, this couple, Frida and Len Saraga. Um, and when my parents came back home from visiting me in Florida for my graduation, they joined the local PFLAG chapter okay. um, and ultimately became the co-chairs of the PFLAG wow. chapter. Mm-hmm. So, so they went from being accepting to becoming outspoken advocates. Yes, it's important to be an advocate, and I would love to see everybody be an advocate. Um, we, you know, we all need to have our allies, and we all, I think, need to be allies. But if you can't do that, if a grandparent can't be an outspoken advocate, if all they can do is be a loving, accepting grandparent, you know, that's a gift all by itself. Absolutely. You know, for the grandchild, and mm-hmm. really for the grandparent too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's exactly how I feel. It was. It was a wonderful gift to, and then to have these four individuals who just I knew were behind me 100% and loved me 100% and loved both my moms. Do you have any other final thoughts? The, the world is changing very quickly and there are all kinds of things that are taking place right now that we really need to be aware of. I think, mm-hmm. I think it's just so important to be aware, stay informed, vote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so important to vote. Um, and and to just be there as supporting, loving grandparents mm-hmm. for grandchildren, you know, and, yeah. and for the grandchildren, let your parents love you, uh, grandparents love you and support you however they feel they can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's always a journey. You never know what, what could change, you know, in a few years or how people right. can grow um, over exactly. time. And certainly... The, out, the Pearls of Wisdom program is there for anybody who does want to speak out or maybe just wants to hear from other people who have gotten to that point or a different point on their own journeys. Right. Exactly. Well, thank you, Dr. Sanlo. Thank you so much for talking with me today. I'm, it's, it's really been a, just an absolute pleasure. Oh, Emily, thank you so much. Again, thank you for joining us today. This podcast is brought to you by the PRX Podcast Garage. Their community hours program gives studio time and training to Boston nonprofits developing a podcast. Learn more at podcastgarage.org. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Outspoken Voices. You can find Outspoken Voices on our website, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Family Equality Council at familyequality.org and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Family Equality. Until next time, remember that love, justice, family, and equality is what brings our families together.